0: Psalm number 348, Jeff has asked that we mark that and how excited we are always to be able to sing as we have done so far even this evening. Surely as we consider the blessings that attach to a portion of our worship, the singing surely occupies a tremendous portion of that and how blessed we are with the voices that we have surely. Tonight as we come to this portion of our service to spend the next few moments in contemplation of some portion of the Word of God, I'd like to ask you to think about a lesson I've entitled, Why I Am Not a Christian. The Scriptures? And I phrase it for, that, for a particular purpose and for a particular reason that way. What you hold in your lap and perhaps what you access by way of a smartphone or otherwise, the preciousness of the Word of God, you and I look upon that fundamentally differently than so many others that, that walk upon this particular planet. And tonight I would like to share with you some thoughts relative to why some folks are not Christians and they claim it's because of the Bible. Why don't we spend a few moments and think about what they are looking at so differently than the way we see it? What viewpoint, what consideration are they employing that looks so fundamentally distinctly upon passages and sections of the marvelous Word of God? To do that, why don't we introduce the lesson in the following way. On this slide, you'll notice easily some considerations about the breadth and the large number of flexible ways that individuals might react to the Bible. There are those, of course, that look upon the Scriptures very seriously. Quite frankly, they love the Word of God. And I know that I speak, of course, in description of so many of in this audience that feel that very way. Oh, how love I thy law. It is my meditation all the day. Psalm 119, verse 97, verse 140 of that same chapter, "'Thy word is very pure, therefore thy servant loveth it.'" Verse 127 of that longest chapter in the Old Testament. It is in the situation of that circumstance we read, "'Thy word I love more than gold, yea, than fine gold.'" When you and I give thought to that kind of reaction, notice how far it is distinct from those who have at least a disdain for it. There are those who have a disinterest in it. Quite frankly, it might even be said some have a hatred toward the Bible. In Proverbs 13, verse 13, Solomon wrote it like this, "...those who despise thy word will be destroyed." There are those that despise it. They literally have a great animosity toward it. In Isaiah 5, 24, God, there through the prophet Isaiah affirm that those who, in fact, rebel or turn their back upon it, He would destroy them. Maybe those passages at least give us an appreciation to the large breadth or possible range of those that react to the sacred Scriptures. Surely, as we come to the bottom of that, may I ask that as I entitle the lesson, there are those who really claim to use the Bible as a reason for not believing in God. As hard as that might be for you and me to understand, why don't we develop that point perhaps a little more thoroughly using some appreciations of a gentleman named Richard Carrier. Now, you may not be too familiar with Richard Carrier, but suffice it to say the man is an acclaimed atheist. And when he was asked as to why he does not believe in God and why he does not believe the Bible and why he does not, in fact, give himself to Christianity... He listed as one of the principal reasons the very book that you hold in your lap. What is it about the Bible that seemingly led him to believe that there is no God because of this book? And there is no reason to believe in Jesus because of this book? And there is no reason for being a Christian because of this book? I have used a quotation and I would ask you to notice. And I quote, these are his words. A God who wanted us to make an informed choice would give us all the information we needed and not entrust fallible, sinful, contradictory agents to convey a confused mess of ambiguous, poorly supported claims." Clear the man has a very strong set of ideas, doesn't he? Clear he has a very strong set of opinions about not only the gentleman that wrote the Bible, But the forces that led them to do so and the result of their production. I would ask you to notice I have pulled out a few of the statements and put them in italics because, again, they're what he said. First of all, he asserted that those people who did write the Bible, he claimed three things about them. First, they were fallible, meaning that what they wrote cannot be trusted. They wrote mistakes, so much so that they themselves were sinful in the production of it. And finally, you'll notice he claimed contradictory matters touching that which they wrote. Those are some strong assertions, aren't they? To claim that those 40 individuals, roughly, that wrote the sacred scriptures were themselves contradictory, sinful, and fallible. Not only that, notice his idea toward the book that they produced. As far as the Bible itself, using his own words, he asserted that the result of their efforts led to a document that itself is a confused mass of ambiguous, poorly supported claims. As you read further in the words of Mr. Carrier, he said, among other reasons, I choose to not be a Christian because of that. Amazing, isn't it? However, perhaps one final thing. You may notice he began that statement by asserting that if there really is a God, then surely He would have given us everything we needed and would have given it to us clearly, unambiguously, so that nobody could possibly misunderstand it. At this point, as we close that slide, please again note the title. The Blessed Bible to Some People. Let's turn that saga around and consider what the Scriptures are to those who truly do love it, who really do appreciate it. And then we'll use the remainder of our time tonight, following that, to try to cast a spotlight back on some of the things Mr. Carrier stated and use them to help us strengthen our own faith relative to the Blessed Book Divine. It is with that in mind, what about the way the faithful look upon the Blessed Scriptures? You'll easily notice on this slide, those who are faithful readily recognize that God has given us the very thing Mr. Carrier said that He should. All things that pertain to life and godliness. In 2 Peter 1 verse number 3, the inspired writer Peter there put it in language like this, According as His divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. That's verses three and four of Second Peter chapter one. It never should pass us too easily the fact there that the promise is he gave us all things. Not most things, some things, nearly all things. He literally, and in the Greek text, it thoroughly is that word indicative of the full suppliance of all things related to that which is godly. You'll notice also in 2 Timothy 3 verses 16 and 17, with particular emphasis on verse 17 as we notice it in a moment, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And now verse 17, "...that the man of God might be perfect, throughly furnished unto all good works." There, by virtue of the application of those scriptures, he says, "...the man of God might be perfect," meaning complete. "...everything necessary and needful to appear just and sanctified and right before God is available." Mr. Carrier is mistaken in that. He claims that there is not adequate information given by virtue of the Scriptures, but he is absolutely and eternally mistaken. Not only that, may I ask you to notice that these Scriptures, we find in them the powerful necessity of obedience to them. It's not enough to hear what they say one must put into practice that which they assert and put into full practice that which they lift high. Those matters approved by the God of heaven. In Revelation 22 verse 14, we read, Blessed are they that do His commandments. Earlier in James chapter 1 verse 22, we notice there the impressiveness that attaches to this statement. And be ye doers of the word, not hearers only. All of us are quick, and we've noticed in our prayers how frequently we beseech God to assist us to carry out those activities that we find approved in the Word of God. You'll notice the third point brings us to this consideration. What about those individuals whom God chose to write the sacred scriptures? Mr. Carrier asserted they were fallible, they were sinful, and they were contradictory. He asserted that what they wrote is not to be trusted. He asserted that what they wrote does not carry the matters of authenticity. What does the Scriptures say about those that wrote it? Let's look at just a few passages. We've already noted that text in 2 Timothy 3. A moment ago, we cast the spotlight on verse 17. What about verse 16? All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. There was clearly a distinction between what occupied the place known as Scripture and what was not Scripture. In the Greek text, the word is graphe, G-R-A-P-H-E. It looks like the word graph to you and me. But it recognized and had within it the thought of that which truly came not from the thoughts and mind of men. Scripture. And thus Paul identified all Scripture is by inspiration of God. The word that there appears is literally theonustos, meaning breathed of God or breathed by God. These are words of Scripture then and as such they occupy that place because God provided them. He revealed them. They are literally His thoughts expressed in His words. That of course means the sacred text of the Bible has no equal, no comparable par or document anywhere else on earth. Although many a gentleman and many a person has attempted to claim other books occupy a comparable station to it, all absolutely fail in that regard in terms of those men that wrote it. We stated earlier tonight approximately 40, it would seem, is the number. It would seem that there were exactly eight writers of the New Testament books and approximately 32 of those writers of the Old Testament books. Well, the reason I say approximately, some of those Old Testament books do not identify who wrote them. We think by virtue of the time period, and we think by virtue of the circumstances described, that we can make a pretty close statement, but it isn't certain, of those 40 writers. We have already learned that what they wrote came from God. Far different from what Mr. Carrier asserted. In fact, isn't it interesting that we can quickly recall the far-famous words of David? Remember, David himself wrote certain portions of Scripture. He wrote the Psalms, and it would seem that as he did so, we might well think of passages like this one. In 2 Samuel 23, verse number 2, in which we see the description of David, he said, "...the Spirit of the Lord spake by me, and his word was in my tongue." David knew full well that he was writing Scripture. He says, God's Spirit spoke through me. And in so doing, as David, in fact, penned or wrote that which was his, his blessing to write, doesn't it remind us the sweetness described then of David's writing? We well remember that Jeremiah felt similarly, and so too, especially, did Ezekiel. Those also having statements reminding us of the sweetness of David's own words. You'll notice about the middle of that slide, we have a very powerful commentary on this whole idea found in the opening verses. I'm sorry, the closing verses of the opening chapter of 2 Peter. In 2 Peter 1 verses 20 and 21, I would ask you to notice the thrust of an innocent little clause found in in verse 21 especially. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation... For the prophecy came not by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Peter clearly affirmed then that what was written and occupies that station of Scripture did not come from the mind of man. But rather he said, Holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, thus, as the ultimate author, the prompting guide, the superintending force, if you will, it was that Holy Spirit that thus provided you and me with the blessedness of the Holy Scriptures. You'll notice then, Mr. Carrier said, contradictory, fallible, and sinful. Now, if the Holy Spirit directed the writing, then those men were not fallible as they wrote. Furthermore, Truth never, ever contradicts itself, ever. And thus, if the Holy Spirit is, of course, of the God of truth, Deuteronomy 32, 4, then we understand what He wrote also is a matter of absolute truth. Finally, you'll notice on that slide, that leads us to some conclusions, namely about the fact that the Scriptures for itself declares it is fully trustworthy. The Bible says that about itself. May I ask you to recall Psalm 111, verse number 7. Here again in the midst of those Old Testament David writings of David, the has set forth the fact that God's words, the words of Scripture, are of judgment and verity and truth. God's words occupy that kind of consideration. Beyond that, in Ezekiel 12, verse 25, God said, My word shall surely come to pass. Never a possibility of discrepancy, error, or mistake. Finally, in Matthew 24, verse 35, Jesus Himself, as He gave that lengthy discussion about the nature of answering the questions that the apostles had asked, He said, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. Absolutely etched in the halls of heaven, if you please. Didn't the psalmist say in Psalm 119 verse 89, Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. Maybe in light of all those things, we can come and note the next consideration that I would ask you to consider. Mr. Carrier, remember, asserted that there were some rather unpleasant attributes to the Bible. Remember, he said it's an ambiguous, confused, and unsupported mess. Well, let's think about that. What about the statements the Bible makes about the purifying force that it can bring to human life? To purify, to cleanse, and to make whole, to make that which was not right, to make that to be Right? And yet this Bible has words like this within it. Psalm 119, verse number 9. Many a young person, and many an older one alike, has no doubt reflected often upon the thrust of a verse like that one. Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? Good question, isn't it? How will this young person and even I as an older, how will I cleanse my way in my life? Same verse answers it. By taking heed thereto according unto thy word. Two verses different from that in verse number 11. Thy word have I hid in mine heart that I might not sin against thee. We find in the Bible those words that encourage purity of heart and life. Beyond that, might we consider John 17 verse 17, uttered from the lips of the Master Himself. Jesus was praying in the midst of that incredible intercessory prayer given on that occasion. As he prayed for his apostles, he said, Sanctify them through thy truth, thy word is truth. We noted earlier, Mr. Carrier felt as if the Bible is riddled with errors and discrepancies and mistakes. Again, it's an ambiguous document that's impossible to understand. And yet, Jesus said, Ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Now, who do we believe, Mr. Carrier? or the Holy Spirit that delivered it. To those who trust in the document known as the Bible, that answer is so easy. In terms of purity, wasn't it Peter, who in 1 Peter 1 verse 22 said, that it is that document, the Bible, that purifies, cleanses, and leads to a wholeness in life. And all that happens as that truth is obeyed. Maybe in light of all of that, the closing thought, It is held without doubt that the Scripture set forth the claim that it is the exclusive, the full and only way to salvation. You'll notice in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Maybe all of that prepares us for 1 John 5, 13, in which those who believe and those who, of course, follow the dictates of that which is the Word of God are, of course, promised eternal life. We've looked at such a wide discrepancy. On the one hand, those who look upon the Bible as filled with mistakes and errors, and yet there are those who look upon it as the sweet and beautiful revelation of God. At this point, some great questions now come before us. Questions that we simply will look at like this. How can there be such a great deal of misunderstanding about the Bible? How can there be so much in terms of people like Mr. Carrier and many others like him who look upon this and claim, Here's the reason I don't believe in God. And here's the reason I do not believe in the church. And here's the reason I will never believe Jesus is the Savior of the human family. And yet you and I claim the very same book teaches that Jesus is the Savior of the human family and that God does love men and women and wants them to be saved. And God has provided the church as the thoroughfare through which the saved have a blessed family on earth. Here are some reasons as to why people can look at the Scripture so differently. What are some reasons why some people misunderstand it? First of all, might we notice that when the Bible is understood, it will be understood alike. When the Bible is understood, it will be seen coherently and harmoniously, and it will be understood alike. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 4, Paul, writing to the Ephesian congregation, said, "'You may understand my knowledge in the mystery of God.'" Clearly upon reading the book of Ephesians, or at least hearing it read in that first century era, they were able to understand Paul's mastery, his knowledge, his appreciation of the mystery of God. The text that Brother Wendell read earlier tonight in Ephesians 5 verse 17, understand what the will of the Lord is. That's an absolute statement of Scripture. It is possible to understand it despite what Mr. Carrier says and despite what others of his framework have also asserted. It might well be the last passage in John 20, verses 30 and 31, remind us from the words of Jesus Himself. This was after He was crucified and even after He was resurrected, of course, when, as He met with His apostles, He made this statement. Truly, many other signs did Jesus in the presence of His disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. You and I know that Jesus did many things that the Holy Spirit has chosen not to preserve. But what is preserved and what is written is completely sufficient and adequate to provide a living and active faith in those that will seek to understand it. What are some brief reasons that you and I might use for the next few moments? Quick observations about why the Scriptures are misunderstood by some. May I suggest first there are some who read the Scriptures very unwisely, they don't recognize distinctions in literature. We even know easily, and our youngsters do certainly, that when you take classes, and English classes, and literature classes, students are encouraged to recognize distinctions in literature. Some literature is narrative, some is fiction, some is prose, some is poetry. They learn to read them differently, and they learn to read them for the intent by which the author had in mind. They don't read every kind of literature as if it's exactly the same that literature that's more poetic. You look for symbolic character often in the nature of the words utilized. You learn not to read it often literally for the words the author has used. At least when I had literature classes, that's what gave me the most trouble. The teacher could see things housed in those words, and I never did develop a great ability to see them. It was simply beyond me. But yet, you and I know, no such ambiguity rests with regard to the Bible. There are sections, and we can see it so easily. There are sections like Revelation that are very symbolic, and the text tells us that it is. And there are books like Ezekiel and Zephaniah that are much like it. There are other books like Genesis that read like a powerful and motivational story. That was, of course, literally true. As we read all of that, one of the things, though, that many fail to appreciate is the distinction in those literary types. It is for sure if you try to read Revelation the same way you'd read, say, the book of Genesis, you're likely going to have problems. And if you try to read a book like Zechariah the same way you'd read a book like Acts, it's likely not going to go well. But when we understand the literature being employed by the Holy Spirit and read it accordingly, read it for the symbols He has employed, it can mean so much and have so much meaning for you and for me. I would bring to our thought the words in Matthew chapter 13, verses 10 and following, where Jesus, in fact, addressed this very point. The Lord was asked on that occasion, He had just taught a parable, and yet the disciples said, "'Why are you teaching in parables?' Sounds like a good question. Why not just plainly tell them what's on your mind? Jesus gave them an answer. He said, those who wish to see will see, and those who do not won't. There was something to be appreciated about the necessity of providing that beautiful story that was right after he had told the parable of the sower. And when they asked, he said, some people's ears are stopped, and even though they hear and think they understand, they really don't. But he said, it's given for you to understand the mysteries of God. Can't you and I be thankful for the Lord speaking in parables when He did and choosing not to when those also were the best times? Maybe a second reason would be this one. There are some who upon looking at the Scriptures do not look upon it objectively. Again, I would ask you to notice, they do not study with objectivity. That word objective carries with it the thought of clearness, openness, a recognition, and not simply following one's own predispositions. There are many in our world, it seems, who think that they understand the Bible, but they really have never read it to be sure for themselves. They've just heard people talk about it, and they think they know what it says, but they have an agenda they think that they know, and thus they are going to twist and bend it so that it seems to justify what they want to do. That's not objective study, is it? I would ask you to notice the words of John eight thirty-two, where Jesus said, Ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. In 2 Timothy two fifteen, Paul in writing said, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. It may well be as we think about the necessity of studying objectively. You and I know that we can't think on God's plane unless we allow Him to tell us how to think. His ways are far above ours, and so too are His thoughts. Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. But thankfully, when we read the Bible, we can learn His thoughts and learn to see things the way He does. Perhaps a third point would be this one. There are many who it seems are motivated by the assumption that truth ought to be easy. Mr. Carrier feels that way. Didn't he say it ought to be so clear and so easy everybody ought to see it with almost no effort? The Bible nowhere makes that claim. In fact, might I ask you to consider this desire for smoothness and easiness And I want truth to be given to me without me having to make any effort for it. God had never dealt that way with the human family in terms of revealing Himself, has He? He gave the ancient Israelites those books we call the Law of Moses and He expected them to rightly decipher it and to obey it. In terms of that desire for easiness, recall with me Isaiah 30 verse number 10. There were those in Isaiah's day who said, prophesy unto us smooth things. I don't want anything hard. Isaiah didn't give it to them. He unloaded the truth of the Lord, didn't he? This matter of smooth things doesn't correspond to the truth of God, does it? And for that reason, many do not have an interest in the Bible because it's too much work to decipher it and study it. They want something easier than that. Maybe a New Testament passage would be this text in 2 Peter 3 verse 16. It's always been an interesting thing to observe how Peter described some of the sections of the Bible. In that verse, 2 Peter 3 16 Peter himself made reference to the writings of Paul. Some of those books, perhaps like Romans or Corinthians. And Peter himself, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, said, "...which things men have rested to their own destruction." And those things are sometimes hard in their understanding. Some of Paul's writings, hard to be understood. That's what Peter said. I believe you and I, in honesty, would agree to the same. Some of Romans can be challenging and some of Corinthians takes a great deal of effort, doesn't it? We find that quite often in our midweek Bible study as we look at the Corinthian letters, don't we? There are times it challenges us. We understand that truth, this desire for easiness, is something that requires effort on our part and many have not an interest in exerting that effort. Maybe as we come to a fourth observation... There are those who as they look at a section of the Bible or a passage or a text, they fail to appreciate the context in which it's found. It has often been said, and it's still true, that we must never take a text out of its context. For if you do, you can make the Bible really into what it never was from God to start with. This matter of making sure we respect the context... What was the question Paul raised in Romans chapter 4 verse 3? What saith the Scripture? Above all things else, Paul said, what does the Bible have to say? And notice that requires a context, an understanding of the circumstances surrounding a given passage. You and I could list many considerations and examples of that. It is that very idea that likely has led to the greatest number of biblical contradictions, at least in terms of the allegations of men. For example, in the Old Testament, we can find passages where it says that they beat their swords into plowshares. But yet a few books later, they beat their plowshares into swords. Now, which is it? There are some who said, well, those are directly Contradictory. I can't beat my sword into a plowshare and then beat plowshares into swords. But notice, different people were being addressed. God wasn't talking to the same people in both circumstances. When one understands that context, what appeared to be a contradiction absolutely settles into nothingness. You'll notice we could perhaps list another example, and unfortunately many have stumbled over the plan of salvation in this regard. Jesus in Mark sixteen sixteen said, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Easy to understand, it would seem, isn't it? But if we turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 17 and 18, we read, Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. So some have said, there it is. Paul wasn't supposed to baptize, and so I don't think I need to be. And many have lapsed through this life and never obeyed the gospel because they misinterpreted 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Those two passages don't contradict each other. They were written for a different consideration. Paul wasn't addressing the plan of salvation in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He was stating the marching orders given to him. Obedience to the gospel was a necessary part of what he preached. When you and I recognize the understanding that comes with the context, many of the alleged contradictions absolutely dissolve into nothing. These four ideas perhaps lead us to another. What else might be a supposed reason for some biblical misunderstanding? It seems as though with each passing decade, this issue is becoming a more serious one. There was a time perhaps 200 years ago when this was not really a problem. But likely ever since the days of Charles Darwin, the ascendancy has been increasing. Many are under the impression that the Bible must somehow, in every detail, be harmonized with the claims of science. Be it biology, chemistry, physics, oceanography, astronomy, or anything else. Science has to be taken as absolutely right, and anything religion claims has to fit it somehow. So they think this Bible has to fit the proclamations of scholars and scientists and others. And obviously one has problems if you think that that has to be true. What about the days of Genesis chapter 1? Biology absolutely says those were not literal days. If I try to fit the Bible to make it so, that now contradicts Exodus, and it contradicts Mark chapter 10, and it contradicts nearly every other New Testament book. So if I'm going to change my thinking to fit science, how can I respect the Bible? Notice in 1 Timothy 6, verse 20, near the very close of that epistle, Paul gave a warning to Timothy about the false knowledge or the false considerations of science. There were already considerations in that day that led Paul to warn Timothy about the false claims of science. May you and I in faith, in verity, in strength and in confidence recognize that it's not the Bible that must give way to science. It's science that must give way to the Bible. It is the truth of God that shall reign supreme in that final day. In Romans chapter 1, verse 20, we notice on that occasion that Paul said, "...for the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made." even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. How marvelous it is to see the inventions and the discoveries of science that are able rightly to be seen in context with God's Word. But when there's difference, you and I know this one is not the one that's wrong. And this one is not the one with mistake. Maybe sixthly and finally, Another reason why many misunderstand what they think the Bible says is because they really have not based it on what the Bible says. They've based it on what they have heard someone say the Bible says or what they've been taught that the Bible says. In other words, they have blindly accepted the teaching of others, really never looked intently to see whether the Scriptures really do say that. This has, of course, been a problem that has plagued the human family and to this day is a tremendous plague, uh, keeping so very many from accepting the truth, accepting what others have said. In Galatians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, Paul, in writing to the Galatian brethren, said, But though we, or an angel from heaven, should preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed." As we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that which you have received, let him be accursed. The uniqueness and the power of the gospel is unmatched and it's unsurpassed. And yet we notice there were those that had a different message in Paul's day and he affirmed the Galatians. If anybody under any context for any reason says something opposed to, and in some way contradisting this, let that man be accursed. Don't blindly accept what he teaches. What was said about those in Acts chapter 17 verse 11, that was so complimentary. Wasn't it said of them, these were more noble than those in Thessalonica, and that they received the word with all readiness of mind, and searched the Scriptures daily, whether those things were so. Notice they didn't just accept what they were told. They let the Bible do the talking and they of course look for the truth found in that great word of God. You'll notice I've listed a whole host of warnings both Old and New Testament about times and circumstances and places where there were individuals who did accept blindly what they were told but what they were told was wrong. What they were told was not in accordance to the the revealed will of God. As you and I look at some of that list, Jeremiah 5, 531 gets us off to a rousing start. For there it even had to do with religious teachers who were teaching error. Religious teachers teaching error, could that ever be? It was then and it is so now, isn't it? When God spoke about those that were His, the teachers of the people, religious teachers, He spoke about the errors that they taught and how sad that it was. In Micah chapter 3, verses 3 and following, we have an extended presentation and God warned the people through Micah, these people teach religion, but they are in essence blind. They haven't received a message from me. They haven't heard a vision from me. They are speaking their own ideas. That sounds a lot like the problems that of course have continued to plague us today, doesn't it? Maybe you and I can come to the New Testament and be reminded that in Matthew chapter 22, Jesus, speaking about some of His days, said, Ye do greatly err, not knowing the Scriptures nor the power of God. Now these were religious teachers, and yet Jesus said they didn't know the Scriptures, and they were greatly in error in what they did teach. One more time, a strong reminder, isn't it? Finally, in 1 John 4 verse number 1, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they be of God, for many false prophets are gone out into the world. All of those passages are such that their message is clear, but that number could be extended so greatly. So many other passages might be listed. But tonight, so far, we've learned that Mr. Carrier and those like him that try to use the Bible as a reason not to believe, and to use the Bible as a reason not to be a Christian, they have erred so greatly in that they have failed to appreciate and failed to look with clarity and with understanding on the truths found in the Word of God. So in summary, might we at least say this, man in his foolishness and in his weakness may well try to use God's Word as a reason to not believe, But such a reason is unfounded. And such a reason, in fact, speaks to the nature. They really haven't looked in detail at the Scriptures themselves. We've looked at six things that might cause misunderstanding. Those range all the way from failing to read the clarity and the context and the understanding to the consideration of just listening to others without personal study and careful consideration. I trust that you and I will then feel somewhat sorry, of course, for those who try to use the Bible the way Mr. Carrier does because it is far from being a confusing, ambiguous, hodgepodge mess. It is the revealed will of God and those who trust and obey it are those who receive the promise of eternal life, 1 John 2.25. Tonight, what about you and me? Do you and I, of course, look upon the Scriptures with the greatness and the power that it claims? Or do we suspect it and question it and doubt it? May we leave with a fortified faith. May we leave this evening with a rejuvenated confidence and assurance in that which is the revealed will of God. But, of course, it does beg the question, if you're not right with God tonight, let the Bible tell you what you must do. And if you are an alien sinner, you must believe Jesus to be the Son of God, repent of your sins, confess His name as a Son of God, and then be baptized. If you have attended to that, taken care to obey that in honesty and in fullness, but you have slipped from it, you've slipped into unfaithfulness and into apostasy, why not tonight come back to your first love? The Lord, day by day, as you use the Bible, will strengthen your faith, leading you into greater service in His kingdom. We'd be happy to pray with you. If tonight we could do that, we would certainly extend the invitation. Brother Jeff has chosen a song of encouragement, and if right now you need to come forward, don't delay, but do it at once while together we stand and sing.